crumbling as a nation because sinners are acting like sinners. We're crumbling because saints aren't acting at all. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Too many Christians have left the battleground for the playground. I cannot and I will not recant. The black community goes to church on Sunday and then votes Democrat on Tuesday? It's not the just shall live by fear. It's the just shall live by faith. Here I stand. I can do no other. And welcome back, listeners, to uh, Here I Stand. We are in our foundation series. We're coming to the end of our foundation series, and we've chosen uh, the subject of the end, the eschaton, eschatology, for uh, this final series. And, and I would uh, encourage all our listeners, if you are troubled by the subject of eschatology, uh, don't be, uh, but it is a demanding subject, and this broadcast uh, is not going to answer all the questions. We're doing this to encourage thought, reflection, and prayer on the subject, not uh, believing this is uh, the final answer, the final word, uh, or all that you need to know is uh, in this broadcast. Revelation 20 would be one of the key passages someone would have to go to in terms of uh, finding out what does Scripture say about the return of Christ specifically with respect to the thousand-year reference in Revelation 20. I think it maybe mentions a thousand years six times in that passage. So that's where the term millennium comes from. And there are those who believe that Jesus returns to the earth before that millennium. So you get pre-millennia or pre-millennium from that view. There are others who believe that Jesus returns after that thousand-year period, so you get post-millennium or post-millennial from that view. And then there are those who say that millennial period uh, really is not what other believers think it is, uh, so you get the idea of amillennial, um, the amillennial position being that really the conception that both pre- and post-millennials have about the millennium is wrong, uh, that millennial period is the heavenly kingdom, nothing uh, really related to the earth. So I, I think that's a, an accurate uh, position. Now, I, I happen to be a post-trib, post-millennial, and, and I say the post-trib there somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I, I identify, uh, if, can I use the term I identify? <laughs> that's my uh, chosen eschatological gender. Is yeah, as long as, it, as long as it's fluid, because we're going to change your mind by the end of the program. But yeah, go ahead. I'm a cis post-millennial. Can I say that? <laughs> and uh, James and uh, John, I hope I get their genders right, are uh, pre-millennial, but with, uh, with a difference. In, in pre-millennialism, there are those who believe Christians will go through the tribulation period uh, and... Then there are those who believe the rapture occurs before the tribulation, so pre-trib and post-trib, and I think there's even mid-trib, uh, but I, I, don't, uh, I don't know how many identify with uh, mid-trib or believe in that position. So there, there are uh, differences even, I suppose we could go uh, among all the post-millennials and, and we could come up with differences. So there are larger categories that are meaningful but we recognize there are differences in those categories. So gentlemen, anything you want to contribute on the, the definition part before we kind of take step two? No, I, I think, I think you, you defined it well. I, I think that's accurate. I, it, the pre-rap uh, position that you just mentioned is relatively new, um, proposed by uh, Mar Rosenthal and others, that three and a half years into what's known as the tribulation, before the great tribulation, okay, there's so a, there is a rapture. Now, um, considering James's view that the rapture, it, you know, is coincides with the second coming. Mm -hmm. When you look at the language, Calvin, in First Thessalonians and the catching up to, with the Lord in the air, yes. it, you don't believe that's literal then? You believe that's an expression or do you, do you believe in some kind of rapture? That, I believe, is the second coming, to be caught up with, okay. with the Lord. And 
Um, I, there, is, there is some cooperation uh, with, with that view in terms of the, the idea of a parousia. When the king comes, you go out to meet the king. Yes. And I think yeah. uh, that uh, idea of being snatched up, I, I understand that as a reference to the end, yeah. to the final return of Christ. So you do believe, though, that we'll meet him in the air, or who, that generation will meet him in the air and then return to earth. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you, then you, you do believe in a rapture. Oh, yeah. It's just not, not yeah. secret. Not, not secret. Yeah. Not a secret rapture. Right. right. Okay. Yeah, I don't believe in a secret rapture either. It's just a matter of be different where. Yeah. So I, I don't put on my vehicle. This vehicle will be unattended when the rapture comes because I think everyone's going to be uh, everyone's going to be uh, caught up, and then the the final judgment occurs uh, with respect to, with respect to that. So maybe that's a good reason to to buy a Tesla if you believe in the rapture. He said it on autopilot mode. <laughs> funny, funny, Calvin. <laughs> You know, we've been laughing um, quite a bit, uh, and we do that with each other. We have a good nature in our disagreement, but that's not the norm when, when people normally talk about this stuff. I've watched a number of debates from the differing views, and it, it could get very, uh, Calvin, you said don't be afraid, even though it's a weighty subject, don't be afraid of it. Um, but especially, you know, one of the things that pains my heart, and this isn't actually the subject of today, but is how the unbelievers view us when when we um, get so caustic about it, when there's a divide in fellowship or when people treat each other uh, differently just because of the different hermeneutics that goes into our understanding of eschatology. And so that's one thing. We, we're not, when we laugh, folks, we're not taking this lightly. We legitimately believe in different views and we would argue those seriously. Um, but we love each other and we understand that this doesn't affect the fact that we are brethren, you know, and um, we also believe in the law of non-contradiction. So we can't all be right. Um, and we will find out one day. And, um, and if I'm the guy uh, with James on the road to Emmaus and, and I get the history lesson from the scriptures, I hope at that time that I'm humble enough for my heart to be jumping out of my chest with excitement too. Right. But will that happen today, Calvin? That's a that's a high bar for you to climb now for you to, for you to do that for us today. But I uh, so the main disagreement really is um, the timing of, of of the second coming. We all believe in the second coming, right. and yet, Calvin. So in your view, though, when the Lord does return, what does that look like? Well, I I think it is it's something that. I don't think it's fully described in scripture other than it is the ultimate day of the Lord. So it is a day of judgment and deliverance that I think is, is what we can describe it as. And, and revelation 20, uh, which I, you know, that's a passage that we all have to wrestle with does seem to describe a, um, like a final gasp of Satan, a final attempt of Satan to assert his power and then the Lord does return in judgment and deliverance. So I, I would say it is the ultimate day of the Lord. It's an awesome day. Uh, the, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism says, why should we look forward to that, even though it is an awesome day? It's because we are looking for the return of our deliverer, our, our judge. So for a believer, it is, you might say, the most frightening day for a believer it is uh, a day of joy and anticipation, a day we should all be looking forward to. Uh, to be fair, and I know you mentioned there are different views in your corner of the room. Wouldn't that suggest that, um, that you do believe, or at least some people on your side of the room do believe that a secret coming has already happened then from Matthew 24? I, I, right? would, say it's, I would not say it was secret. Yeah, I would say it was a very visible coming in judgment. But that's different than the Revelation 20 coming? Or? I would okay. say that, yes. So would you consider that to be a third coming? Uh, well, I would say there are coming comings in judgment. And okay. all of those are pictures of the second coming. Uh, <laughs> the day of the Lord language used, uh, it, it's not used that often by name. But, for example, I would say uh, in Genesis 3, 
that was the day of the Lord when he came to bring judgment on Adam and Eve. They're driven out of the garden. Uh, the day of the Lord language appears in Isaiah. Uh, I think uh, chronologically the first reference would be Amos, where actually Israel is looking forward to the day of the Lord, and, and Amos says, uh, you shouldn't be quite looking forward to the day of the Lord. You're not, it's not going to be what you think it is. You're, you're not on the right side uh, of that coming. So I would say Matthew 24 looks forward, at least in part, to AD 70, or the culmination in AD 70, which I would describe as a day of the Lord. It was a great day of judgment for unbelieving Israel. James, you look like you wanted to jump in. So, you know, I didn't know that. So, Calvin, you believe in three comings, too, a second and a third, in some sense. No, just a second coming at the end. Just oh, but Matthew 24 was a, some, some way a, a coming, and then Revelation 20 would be another coming. Well, yeah, I, I would say uh, Matthew 24 is a coming in judgment. It's not, uh, it's not Acts 1-8. You will see him as, or he will return turn as you saw him leave so in matthew okay. in matthew 24 uh, that language riding on the clouds uh, uh i mean we could get into some of those details but i think it's it's uh what daniel 7 is showing it's it's showing the enthronement of christ in heaven and That's by virtue of that his judgment would, would it be fair to say that you see the the the, the Matthew um, twenty four coming as uh, a figurative? Uh, it wasn't literal. It, 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 it's right. It's not. He's not the lion coming back. He's he's coming in the sense of the church and what what's going to happen through through, through the church. I would say it's it's the coming in judgment that Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. Okay. So did, did that, so that coming, um, is, is over. Did he go back or I'm not trying to be facetious. Yet. Yeah. By coming, I'm saying he's coming on the clouds. It's a picture of judgment. It's the language okay. of judgment that you see throughout the old Testament prophets, the, the cloud language riding yeah. on clouds, uh, See, and I think that's where the confusion lied, even a little bit last week, because I, I know there are some, Kelvin, that, that, that suggest that was the second coming. There are, and that's sometimes known as hyperpreterism or yeah. uh, uh, hyper or pantalism, that that was the resurrection, that was it, eighty seventy, and now we're sort okay. of murky post-second coming of Christ. Uh, so that there, I think... Um, that starts getting into heresy, I, I would say, uh, when you deny uh, or say that the, the coming has already, or the resurrection has already occurred. Yeah, that's tough. So, so and this is for both of you, and I don't, I don't want it to seem like I just have Calvin on the stand. So the coming, though, in Revelation 20, would, would it be fair to say that, you know, the Lord speaks of his first advent as, as the lamb, right? Coming as the lamb, but the second one, that's where we get the whole lion and the lamb kind of thing. The second one, he's coming as a lion, the lion of Judah, sure, and I what think. is he? And he's coming again for judgment, right? I think so. I think. See, so. Kelvin, I didn't want to get into this, but but you're right. Back back there, there's historical context to this, this uh, Perusia, the mm. second coming, in which whenever a king, a conquering king, comes to his city or a conquering city, the officials would rise up and they would go out and meet the king, right? And he would come back. He would go into his 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 city or to his throne mm -hmm. as his officials came out to meet him. Mm -hmm. And so, if you understand, the, I think if you understand the historical context of that, then you will see. I think the second coming is is when he takes the throne, not. And this is where John and I will disagree. Not a secret coming when a king came to to his throne, it wasn't secret, so everyone would see. You see a little bit of that in John, when Jesus comes to Bethlehem, and they say, the Lord has come, and Martha gets up, and she goes to meet Jesus before he comes to the, to the house. He goes, She goes out to meet him, and Mary sits there because she's angry. The Lord has need of you, so they go out to meet Jesus, that, you know, respect, and then, then he comes into Bethany and raises Lazarus. So you see that a little bit, um, with that, and so, I, and that's why I think I, I do believe in context 
that the rapture and the parousia, when he comes down to rule, his officials go and meet him as he's coming to sit on the throne and to take his rightful place as king. And so I think that's the historical context of when he speaks of the second coming. Sure. Um, I, I think we should uh, take a short break and then maybe yeah. uh, continue our discussion after, uh, after the break. Um, let me just throw this out there before we break, and that is um, we all seem to agree on the second coming. Maybe I, I've got a tribulation in there a little bit prior to you guys, but I want, I want to talk about um, when the Lord returns, what will the world look like? Because I think there we have some differences. So, And then we will take up uh, what if we are wrong and weaknesses of our position. So stay with us, folks. Um, we will be back shortly. Um, so stay with us. You are listening to Here I Stand, a ministry of the Christian Emergency League. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. And now back to here I stand. I'm Pastor John Kirkwood, and I'm I am with James Pittman of New Hope Community Church, and the pastor of the Church of Christian Liberty, my friend Calvin Lindstrom. And we are talking eschatology. That's a, that's a fifty dollar theologian word, and it just means end times. The Bible does. Um, say a lot about uh, both of our Lord's Advents, Advent, you know, uh, the first Advent, of course, uh, his coming the first time as a lamb, as, as the suffering uh, Savior um, was, was uh, mentioned quite a bit in the Bible. I, I understand for every verse about his first coming, there are about eight about his second coming. And so this is, uh, this is part of the Bible that uh, both Testaments say a lot about. Calvin mentioned in the in the first segment that Revelation 20 is a significant chapter, Daniel chapter 12 is another one, Matthew 24 and 25, of course, the Olivet Discourse is another one. Um, and uh, I would argue that the prophets have a lot to say about this time. We, we, we came to some agreement on the second coming, and um, but I mentioned that um, what will the world look like when Christ returns? I think it would be fair to summarize my view and James's view. I don't want to speak for James, but our view normally would, would suggest that the Lord is coming back um, as a judge, as the Lion of Judah, um, and uh, Israel at the time is surrounded by enemies and on the verge of something very bad happening. Uh, some people would take um, the verse that says, uh, if, if God doesn't intervene, all flesh might be wiped out. So uh, I think it would be fair to say that both James and I have an apocalyptic view of the return of Christ, that he returns uh, again as a savior and as a judge. And then uh, the peace of the millennial reign is established. And then, and then there's another outbreak uh, toward the end of that of uh, Satan after he's loosed. Um, now, Calvin's view, I think, would be different. I think Calvin views that Satan is bound right now, and that when the Lord returns, he will turn, and I don't want to speak for Calvin, we'll let Calvin go first, but I think he would suggest that he returns to a globe that has been revolutionized for Christ, or I, I don't hesitate to say Christianized, but where um, some of the descriptions of what we would say would be future in the millennium are actually taking place. Calvin, I'll let you put that in your own words if you don't think that was fair. Am I oh, close? That was a very a good a good description. You know, this is where we, um, you know, I think Scripture does speak, but uh, Scripture always, you might say, it gives us what we need to know without satisfying every question that we might want to ask. And, and my view, uh, based even on some of the parables that Jesus taught, the parable of, of the, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that slowly permeates. The kingdom of heaven is like the mustard seed. It starts out very insignificant and small, and yet it grows and becomes uh, a tree in which uh, the birds of, of heaven uh, find their, their roosting places. So the kingdom of heaven started out very small, 120 followers, 
uh, gathered in Jerusalem. It, it grew from there. It spread. Paul said in Colossians, the gospel had been preached to all the world. Now, he doesn't mean uh, Zimbabwe or Romania at that point. Uh, he is referring, I think, to the Oikomene, the, the Roman world. So the gospel pretty quickly did reach the Roman world. Uh, it was preached uh, by Paul and, and the other apostles. So uh, even in the first century, the gospel went out. It uh, turned the world upside down. Not that everything was made right, but it was this tremendous force that went out. And that is what I expect will continue. There will be periods of uh, rise and wane. Um, some, I think, uh, misunderstood the post-millennial vision to be like human progress and science, that uh, science would spread and everything would be peaches and roses. Well, I, I don't believe that. I think there are aspects of technology that are great blessings. Uh, in my view, though, there are periods of, of increase and periods of decrease. The Protestant Reformation, I think, was a tremendous period of, of recovery, but not that everything is going to be wonderful. Believers will have to fight. Uh, to the end, but I, but I believe we are promised a measure of uh, success for the spread of the gospel. And in the midst of that, our, our focus still is on the ultimate return of Christ. We can't lose sight of that. James, did, was I fair in grouping you in with what, what I thought was your view, or did I, did I leave out anything of your view? Say that again. I do believe in an apocalypse. Um, okay. My presentation of your view, I kind of grouped ours together. Was that fair? Did did I leave anything out that you would add? Not that I can remember, because I was sort of okay. thinking and, and listening to Calvin. Um, okay. But but I do believe in, a, in a, an apocalypse. You're saying the seven-year tribulation, right? To which three and a half will be the great tribulations in which the apocalypse. I think the difference between you and I is you think that the church somehow is going to be saved from the apocalypse. I think the church will not be saved from the apocalypse. But we'll be rewarded. But we we agree at the end of the, you know at the end of the tribulation that that culminates with a coming, right? Yes, with, correct. Yeah, correct. And and when Christ comes, we our our canvas is painted more like Rembrandt than Calvin's, which is like Kincaid, right? <laughs> is that fair? I, I don't know. I'm not quite sure. I get it. Okay, dark with dark with dark colors. Um, uh, well, let, let me let me ask you ask you this, Kelvin. When 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 we see passages that we would suggest are millennial passages, uh, uh, when it speaks of the the, li the lamb lying down with the wolf, right. uh, when it speaks of the knowledge of God being so widespread that you really don't have to evangelize anymore, that your neighbor will know it. Right. Does that take place before Christ returns in your view, or will it be after? I, though, there are some difficult questions when you go into the prophets. Isaiah 2 um, and, and a number of other uh, passages. Isaiah 11, I think, is another one. Uh, some of those, and, and there is debate among even people who are on my side, about whether those are the, the eternal state after the return of Christ, and or whether they are a golden age still before the Lord returns. And I wrestle with those. Some of them, I think, are ultimately fulfilled in the eternal state after Christ returns. Uh, when, you, when you look at some of the language there, um, I think they, it's the goal of history. Uh, if, if you look, history started out in darkness, it ends in the glorious light of Christ's return. Just as creation begins in darkness, it moves to light. Uh, the prayer that we pray, Lord, let thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. So I, I believe there is a, a moving towards heaven, but it's not the ultimate until the Lord returns. There is a climax in the Lord returning, even though I believe there is a promise of the spread of the gospel and advancement, even anticipating his glorious return. Yeah, but, but the, the thing is... I Maybe I didn't. Maybe I didn't hear it. But like the lion laying down with the lamb, and if a man dies at a hundred, let, let him be accursed because he died so young. So you right. have those verses. That, so you're saying you're not sure whether it happens before or after. Yeah, that. I think you'd, we'd have to go based on the passage. Uh, okay, I got some you. of the passages uh, seem to. So, so the the passage that the UN has on their statue behind the building. I know you don't believe that is accurate for right now, right? We we shouldn't we shouldn't beat our Glocks into pruning hooks, right? Or, you know, I, I, 
no, I don't think nations are, are, I mean, that is the ideal. That's, that would be the goal. And there is a sense where we enjoy that in Christ. Not all the nations are enjoying that currently. Okay. But you think that could take place before Christ's return is what you're saying? Right. Okay. Um, gentlemen, I, I'd like to play a couple clips from you and get you both to comment on them. Um, it's from a debate I heard um, actually a couple of years ago now, I think 2015, I, and I have my I have my issues with both these gentlemen. I'm not a Pentecostal, um, and I'm not a, a Calvinist. Um, I, I think it would be fair to call Gary DeMar. I don't know that Gary DeMar has Calvin's position. He considers himself a Reconstructionist, but it might be close. But they were uh, they were talking about eschatology, and if you watch this debate, folks, and we'll put it in the link in the bottom, if you watch this debate, I think... It's two gentlemen who treat each other fairly, and it's a two-hour debate where they talk about the issues we've talked about, and I think it's illuminating. But if you watch the debate, and I'm not trying to pick on these men. They, I learned from both of them. I think they're brilliant men. But both of them refuse to answer one question of the other person, and I'd like to play both of those for you. The first one will be Dr. Michael Brown, who's arguing about a syllogism that he puts forth about the way God works and whether or not the modern state of Israel could actually be a, a work of prophecy, uh, a work that God brings them back in unbelief. And then when they call upon his name in great despair, he reveals himself to them and the nations um, by tribe all mourn. He calls this his syllogism. Listen now. I have a very simple syllogism for you, and I, I want to put it forward. When God blesses, no one can curse. When he curses, no one can bless. When God opens a door, no one can shut it. When he shuts a door, no one can open it. When he heals, no one can smite. When he smites, no one can heal. We, we have that laid out often in the Bible. Well, if God scattered the Jewish people in his anger... Which I think we would all agree on has happened in past judgment and happened with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 and then again in 135. If, if he did these things in his anger and scattered the Jewish people under a curse, then who can regather them? We do not have the power to regather ourselves. You can't say the UN did it or politics did it. That would be undoing what God did. The only way that there is a modern restoration and now 6 million Jews living in the land of Israel, which equals the number that were killed in the Holocaust, the only way that happened is because God regathered. Otherwise, if God scattered and Israel had the power to regather itself, then that would be like God blessing someone and, and, and you, you now have the power to curse them or God cursing someone and they can reverse it and turn it into a blessing. Simple syllogism. What did you think of that remark, gentlemen? Um, you know, I, I think there's, there's an aspect I can agree with. I'm, I'm not sure entirely... The, I guess he, he's trying to say that is a fulfillment of, of prophecy, some, some specific passage of, of prophecy. I, in my understanding, there is a place for Jews in God's plan for the future. Romans 11, I think, teaches that, that there is a restoration of ethnic Israel. I don't believe it has uh, political ramifications. It has salvific ramifications and part of that may be, okay, they're restored to, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the land in, in Israel. But so I'm not, I, I would say the ultimate restoration is what Romans 11 speaks of. And if that happens to include other aspects, okay, I'm fine with that. But I don't think 1948 was, in my view, a prophetic fulfillment. So if, 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 if it's going to be a fulfillment, then what scripture are you fulfilling? Because if you go... To Ezekiel 36 and 37, then you can't that would stop. be what he's suggesting. Yes, yeah. you got to go to 38 and 39, which speaks of an apocalyptic time heading towards a second, a literal second coming of Christ. Because that was that's the whole point of 36 and 37, the gathering back into the land, because God is going to do what I, I believe talked about in Revelation. Listen, he also, because I did listen to a little bit of the debate, he also did talk about um. God's judgment coming and he uses some scriptures such as Jesus because you missed the time of your visitation. Mm -hmm. And Jesus talks about God's judgment coming, which I think is fulfilled in AD 70. Mm -hmm. If that is true and God uh, judges Israel and curses Israel, who can, uh, or, 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 or visits Israel and judges, 
Like in his words, if God curses someone, no one has the power to then come along and bless. Only God can do it. And so if that's true, then he's saying by default, if you agree to that, then by default, the gathering back into the land of 1948 has to be God and only God. Otherwise, your argument is that someone has the power to bless when God curses. To me, yeah, you're basically, yeah, you're, you're basically making an anti-Balaam remark. And Balaam couldn't curse the Jews because God had blessed them. Well, and, and I think that's his, he's building his yeah. argument on that. And, and James, I, uh, ironically, there's people on both sides of this issue who would argue on that. And uh, I know uh, a oh. Southern Baptist, uh, Paige Patterson, uh, believes that Israel will be scattered again because he believes those passages that you mentioned suggest that Israel is going to be regathered in belief. Now, I read Ezekiel 36 and 37, and I see Israel regathered in unbelief, and, uh, and, they, and except, uh, Zechariah 12 and 14 as well. They, they don't recognize their Messiah until they call his name, and then they look upon him whom they have pierced. So I would argue that it could be fulfilled, because they seem to be gathered as the dry bones, and they raised up, but God hasn't breathed into them yet. And no, but so, that, uh, but, yeah. That has nothing to do with argument. Whether you believe he, he gathered, whether you believe Israel gathered spiritually, physically, politically, it doesn't matter. His argument is if God did curse them, no yeah. one has the power to redo what God has done. If God opens a door, no one can, can close it. If God closes a door, no one can open it. So if you're saying that God scattered them in divine judgment in 8070, the fact that they came back in 1948, it has to be God. Otherwise, your argument is someone is powerful enough to undo God's judgment. And I think that's a rock solid argument. I, I don't see how you can get around that. Well, I, I would say this. Most of the people who have been brought back in the land are, are still in rebellion. Absolutely. So uh, Jeroboam II extended the power of the Northern Kingdom. Jeroboam II was one of the most powerful kings yes. of, of Israel. Great, you know, that's uh, when, when Jonah... Yes prophesying and now there, there was an aspect where that was God's in a sense that was God's plan but it was in um, it, it wasn't for their blessing ultimately so the fact that they're in the land spiritually that's not necessarily a blessing no again you, I well they're not they're not in the land spiritually though they're in the land literally they're in the land literally I, I and, and the punishment was literal the, the scattering was yes, literal exactly you know, yeah, but, yeah but, I think that, that's his argument that's his argument. I mean, regardless why you believe he came back in, whether sure. this belief, and I believe he's gathering, I think Ezekiel 36 and 37 is setting the foundation for, 30, uh, for 38 and 39 in which he will deal with Israel. Again, that's, that's my belief. He will deal with Israel because of Abraham. Well, this is, a, this is a good segue into the, the second half of the question. And you've gotten into Ezekiel 38 and 39, which I have a feeling Calvin thinks has, has, been, has been fulfilled already. Yeah. Um, you and I think it's future, James. Uh, I would add that I think Zechariah 12 to 14 is future. And Gary DeMar now has a question that he poses really to everyone, but Michael Brown wouldn't answer it, even though in his opening statement he mentioned Zechariah 12 and 14 haven't happened yet, haven't fulfilled what, what was promised there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and here's now this is extended. I don't know if I'm going to let it play for the whole three minutes. Uh, the, the, the Michael Brown clip was a minute, but he's making the same argument. And, and here's Gary DeMar on that. What is it? Well, we're talking, you know, here's God's waited 2000 years, 2000 years to finally bless Israel again, bring them back into the land again. And what happens to them when they're in the land? Two thirds of them are slaughtered. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8. In fact, I've got these quotations here um, that are rather remarkable. Um, uh, Sid Roth, um, host of Messianic Vision, states that two-thirds of the Jewish people living in Israel will be exterminated during the future Great Tribulation. He bases his view on Zechariah 13, 8. Pat Robertson said to Roth, you don't foresee some kind of persecution against the Jews in America, do you? Roth responded, unfortunately, I believe God foresees this. Roth believes that the end is near. Roth believes that the Jews are destined to suffer based on a futurized interpretation of Zechariah 13, 8-9. K. Arthur, I'm not going to read all of these, but I have them all here. 
they're, they're in one of my books, I can't remember which one it is. Jack Van Empe, Israel's Final Holocaust, in which he writes that when the prophecy clock starts ticking again after the rapture, it will be, I'm quoting now, it will be traumatic days for Israel. Just when peace seems to have come, it will be taken from her and she will be plunged into another bloody persecution, a devastating explosion of persecution and misery for Israel. Here's, I won't read this quotation, but it's from the same publisher that actually published uh, Dr. Brown's book, Blow the, it's called Blow the Trumpet in, in Zion. And uh, what is this terrible tribulation that awaits the Jews? Moses said it would take place in the latter days. It is the last seven years of this age, just prior to the coming of Messiah, Jesus, to earth. The Bible says this will be a time of suffering such as the world has never known. The Antichrist will kill two-thirds of the Jews. This could mean that up to 10 million Jews could be killed. Now, the question I would have is, which position really puts the Jews in jeopardy? Now, during World War II, and I would suggest you get a book by, by um, Dwight Wilson called Armageddon Now, where he goes back and looks at writers who hold to this end-time perspective and basically saying what was happen happening to the Jew, Jews was part of this future holocaust that supposedly was going to be poured out on, the, on, on, on Israel while they're back in their land. Here's Charles Ryrie writes in his book, The Best is Yet to Come. It's an ironic title given what he says, says next, that Israel will undergo the worst bloodbath in Jew, Jewish history. I'm quoting. Um, Israel is destined to have a particular time of suffering which will eclipse anything that it has known in the past. The people of Israel are placing themselves within the vortex of this future whirlwind which will destroy the majority of those living in the land of Palestine. I've got more of these. You see, this particular position which postpones these promises, I believe puts Israel in jeopardy throughout our modern history because there are so many people who actually believe that tribulation is coming to Israel. Okay, I played the whole clip to be fair. Um, and we've run long in this segment and we didn't get to our, our questions. So on the other uh, side of this break, uh, I'll, I'll go to James, you first, and then Calvin on uh, Gary DeMar's question. And then we will quickly take up what, what if we're wrong and what is the weakness of our positions and wrap up with the bottom line. Folks, stay with us. Um, it's interesting stuff. We'll be right back. Here I stand with the three pastors. We'll be back in a moment. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. And now back to here I stand. I'm Pastor John Kirkwood, and you're back. We're talking eschatology. Um, I had played two clips from a debate in 2015 between Gary DeMar, a Reconstructionist, and um, and Dr. Michael Brown, who's arguing that Israel does have a literal future that that fulfills all the prophecies of Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah about being back in the, in the land, literally and uh, God working tr through them again in the end times. I, I mentioned that both of them asked each other a question that neither one actually gave an answer to. And with Michael Brown, it was this suggestion about uh, syllogism, what, what God closes, no man can open. Based on that premise, Israel's regathering must be uh, of God. And on Gary DeMar's part, it's this idea that, uh, I think he'd be talking to James and I in the room, that the position we hold about the great tribulation being future and those passages that describe the great tribulation um, describe a hostility toward the people of Israel, toward the, the, the Jew in the land, uh, as the most hostile mo uh, moments of human history toward the Jew. And that's saying a lot because, uh, you know, from, from the earliest passages, Satan has had them in a crosshair. Um, some of those passages describe. Zechariah 13.8, for example, uh, but also passages in Ezekiel and uh, Revelation um, would suggest that there is going to be a tremendous hostility culminating 
in nearly two out of every three Jews being being killed by the hostile forces of Antichrist before Christ's return. Um, he, he suggests, or he at least implies, that this is not a view that favors Israel. Um, and I, I think if you believed all this has happened already in AD 70 or 135, and you had people uh, trying to dredge it up as something future, that would be interesting. Now, during the Holocaust that he mentioned, um, one out of three uh, European Jews was put to death, but the passages here say that two out of three will be put to death, along with some other things happening. James, his question was this, which view is more detrimental to the Jew? Um, the view that the Jew has been swallowed up in the church or replaced by the church, that the blessings uh, pronounced on Israel in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ in the new, um, or in the one body of Christ in the new, or this idea that Israel has this um, great tribulation in front of them, this this next, this final Holocaust, this apocalypse in front of them, which view is more detrimental to, to Israel is, is what he's asking. Well, he can ask the question, and I guess from his standpoint, he's saying that to gather, uh, to take one of the views of uh, I guess one of the Arab kings is he wants Israel to be reconstituted so we can put them all in one place so we can kill them all at one stroke. I guess that that's his, his, his argument is that it's more detrimental to gather them all in one place. So now they're concentrated. And so now one nuke can do a, 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 a good job where we could, you know, we wouldn't have to hunt, hunt them down to each, each country. I guess that's his view. But to me, it makes, that makes no sense to say which one harms the Jew. That, that, that's not the question we should be asking, which view harms the Jew more? The question we should be asking is, what does God's word say, whether we think it's harmful or not? What is true according to the scriptures should be the question, not we should believe one view because it's actually better for the Jews. Sure, James, I agree with you there, James. I think what, what maybe Gary Damara is responding to is, uh, I think it was Hal Lindsey, who accuse people who hold to my position basically of being almost responsible for the Holocaust. And, and so I think there's some, there's some pushback against that view. Uh, Hal, Hal Lindsay wrote a book, I think the road Darmageddon or something. And uh, he, he, he took some, some cheap shots. I'll say at, at the post millennial perspective that Gary DeMar and others uh, represent. So I, I think that's part of his argument. I don't know that Michael Brown has made that argument. So you know, what Gary DeMar is asking, maybe uh, it's a rhetorical thing. I don't know if it applies so much to what Michael Brown is asking, would be, would be my uh, analysis. No, he didn't. He didn't. Uh, and that's the strange thing. He didn't bring up Michael Brown. He listed a bunch of people you heard, but Charles Ryrie and, and, and now some of these people, I don't even know Sid Roth. And I certainly am not going to spend at Robertson, but I do know Charles Ryrie. Um, and I, I, don't, uh, he didn't mention Hal Lindsey, but I think you're right, Calvin. I think that might have been something he's chewing on. Um, the, the question, though, is um, it, it, I, I think you're right. I think you've gotten to the crux of the matter, James, when you say, is it true? It, I mean, I, I think it's fair enough to say that if you believe the tribulation is in front of us and hasn't been completed in AD 70 or AD 135, then why wouldn't you believe what Ezekiel? is um, suggesting or Zechariah is suggesting. Um, now, now, this is a whole other segment that we could do, Calvin, if we look at Zechariah 12 and 14 and say, how do you feel that has been literally fulfilled? Do you, do you believe um, that, um, that, that, that the Jews looking upon him whom they have pierced and mourning as if they've uh, killed their only, only begotten son, do you believe that was fulfilled in the age of the apostles, when Jews were coming into the church, uh, in that fashion, um, yeah. Uh, my my understanding, at least of a lot of the prophets, was they were predicting a something that was amazing. That was the restoration of Israel back to little Palestine, which was unbelievable. When it, when a nation gets scattered like Israel did by the Babylonians, they don't come back, you might say. So my understanding of, of much of the prophets is they are speaking of that return that has been fulfilled, and that, of course, leads to the coming of Christ. So it had to be, <laughs> they had to be restored so that Christ 
could could be uh, the Messiah. So that my understanding of a lot of those is that it's looking to the time of Christ. But but Calvin, a lot of those prophecies are, are, are talked about after they come back. It's after they've been after the the, the Babylon the seventy years in Babylon. Right. Well, and there would right? be period, there would be tremendous periods of suffering for Israel after she returned back to the land. Right. And I, I think so. I think, you know, we would argue that the promises mentioned in Zechariah 12 and 14 have never really been fulfilled. Um, you know, the, the, the return from the Babylonian exile doesn't really do that. I think that that's where we'd go. But I don't, I don't want to, I, yeah, I, I don't want to uh, go down another avenue we don't have time to fulfill. Um, Folks, we promised something we can't deliver today, and uh, well, we'll we'll give some final words today. But we did ask the question: What if we are wrong, and what is the weakness of our positions? Do you think we have time to do one of those, or should we put those off for next week so we have a, a, a fuller show and give our bottom line on where uh, where eschatology should, should lead you? I, I may, let's go to the bottom line one. Okay, I think we should we should end there, and then maybe we can. Uh, you know, discuss some of the other challenges to our view. Um, and I think that would be some interesting interaction as we do that. Okay. Do bottom line now. Yeah, let's, let's do bottom line now. Okay. All right. Um, would, who would like to start? What do you mean by bottom line? I guess. Well, what, what's, what should the believer in, in light, okay. of, in light of everything, what should the believer? Let, let me swing it. Let me swing at that then. Um, let me sw- swing at that then. I-, I think the bottom line for the believer, and this is uh, something that we really built our show on, mm-hmm. um, the bottom line for the believer to me is the just shall live by faith. Exactly. And one of, one, it, one of the weaknesses of my view, and I'll admit it, is there, there, and I know we're not talking about that right now, but it'll help me flesh this out, is there are some in my corner of the room that are not only, um, that it's not only fair to accuse of being apathetic, because they think we're just a passing through and the rapture is going to take place tomorrow. So, you know, we don't have to be good American citizens. We don't have to fight for truth, uh, goodness and beauty uh, because, you know, Jesus is, is, is coming back and uh, we're going to be raptured. I know that um, that view can't be justified, but that view is prevalent with a number of people and it's been frustrating to me. Uh, our calling orders aren't um, uh, aren't that we're we're ambassadors who are on vacation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, we are supposed to occupy until the Lord returns, and we are supposed to um, look at every day as at the as if the Lord might return. And those passages that Kelvin and James both referred to, um, the parables that are mentioned in in Matthew twenty four and twenty five about being ready, about the virgins having the oil and being ready for the Lord's return, not, not being on a lounge chair with an iced tea. Um, I, if, if you hold to the just shall live by faith, um, you can't be wrong. <laughs> Even though you're wrong on your eschatology, if I'm wrong on my eschatology, but I open every day with, Lord, this is your day. I give it to you. Here's how I'm going to live it. I'm going to try and fulfill the grace demands you've called me to. If I'm a child, I'm going to honor my mother, mother and father. I'm a husband. I'm going to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I owe these things not only to my Lord and Savior, but to my fellow man. I'm going to have the heart of Christ towards the unsaved. All these things have to be true of me, and they won't be a distraction. If I live by the just shall live by faith, I'm ready to live in a gulag or the White House. I'm ready to live in the millennium or in the tribulation. And I guess that's the bottom line for me. Yep. And and that's where I could, as a post mill, amen to all of that. <laughs> there has been. Uh, fixation uh, on, I think, that which Scripture has not always revealed. When, when Jesus said, of that day and hour, no one knows, I believe he is, he is referring to his second coming. And, yet, uh, you know, I have a book uh, called The Day and the Hour, which lists uh, over 2,000 years all the people who thought they knew that day and the hour, <laughs> and, and they were wrong, <laughs> every, every single one of them. Uh, recently, just a couple years ago, uh, the... Uh, the famous guy on the radio, family radio, Howard Camping, his website gave a countdown and he had some explanation of how we could get around that. So I've got his book on my shelf over here, 1984, but yeah. yeah. Right. And some of his 1980. Yeah. Absurd. So yeah, the believer must live by faith because 
that that is the life that we're called to live. And, and those parables of Matthew 24 and 25, I think, are, are given so that the believer is focused on the ultimate return of Christ. I, I tend to be more hopeful in the long term, but that doesn't mean in the short term I'm going to what, what I'm going to enjoy. Uh, it may be it may be the sword, it may be scattering, it may be a lot of things. So the bigger picture is not necessarily what I will see in my life. Uh, but I do know the Lord reigns, and if I live or die, then I am the Lord's. So uh, that's that's why I think we have some measure of fellowship, because that is what has brought us together. The just shall live by faith. And James, we're going to give you the last word, but folks, we will answer the questions, what if we are wrong, and what is the weakness of our positions next week when we bring you a new show. So James, you'll, you'll wrap it up for us. All right, so here's why I am. If, if we all, let's say this generation dies, and nothing happens, we'll wake up in glory and we may find out that Kelvin was right. If one day we are walking around and we are raptured and the next thing we know we're in heaven, then we'll know John was right. If somehow we are living and we see two guys uh, appear in Jerusalem and start doing these miracles to ward off Muslim attacks, then we know we have three and a half years before the great tribulation comes and the church is going through. Then we'll know that I'm right. Here's the thing. One of us is right, probably some aspects, and the other two are wrong. I'm fine with that. Our faith does not rest on a, a, a perfect view of eschatology. It is based on that which is very clear, and that is Christ is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, and he will come back in some form or fashion, and he will rule and judge. But here, here's the tack that I'm going to take. That if you don't have if you if you don't know what the view is i think it is lazy and irresponsible to not have a view you you are god uh spoke about this way too much both old testament and new testament for us just to take these large portions of scripture which god has talked about dumped them in my garbage dumped them in the garbage can and say i don't care mm -hmm. see because there is there is some aspect to where is I think that's a part of genuine faith that longs for his coming. And you can't say I'm longing for his coming and not care about this. Mm -hmm. it, it should be something that, that you do look forward to and that you care enough to study. So for the person who says, or uh, uh, pan, pan atheist, or pan, it all pan out or whatever. Pan out. Yeah, that, that's lazy and is irresponsible. The scripture is there to be studied. Uh, and if you care, you will spend time in. in I, I, I like that James closed with, with the scriptures there to be studied, because most of the time when people go into eschatology, especially young believers, they buy books. Um, and whether you're buying Hal Lindsey's book or Gary DeMar's book, don't start there. Start with scripture, folks. Yeah. Go right to the word of God and, and let the Holy Spirit speak uh, to you. And then go to the experts and see what lines. Be a Berean. I will close with this. If there's the small chance that you're an unbeliever and you're listening to this show and you're trying to figure out what Christians believe, let me just suggest something to you to, to, to pique your curiosity. Just about every world culture has an eschatology, and uh, about every world religion has an eschatology. And the Muslims are waiting for the return of the Mahdi, and they actually have an eschatology that has Christ returning. Uh, the Native Americans are waiting for the great white buffalo. The Jews are, are, are waiting for the Messiah to re return. The Christians are waiting for his second return. That should pique your curiosity um, if, if you're an honest man. We'll end with that. Peace be upon you. We'll see you next week. Um, join us um, on iTunes or uh, in, in the uh, Play Store. We'll see. This is Pastor Pittman. Thanks for joining us at Here I Stand. Like us on Facebook and find out more about us at ChristianLeague.org.